If I was to, if you, I was to say your name to someone that you know, what would come to their mind? What are you known for to people that you know? If I was to, Daniel, if I was to go to your friends and say, hey, what do you know about Daniel <clears throat> or James or Avon or Isaac or Chris? What would you be known for? What do you think? You know, it's uh, something to think about. What am I known for? What do people know me as? I think one of the truths about all people is that a lot of times what we're known for may not be the most important thing about us may not be the most significant thing about us. What people know us for may not be the most important and significant thing about our lives. I, mean, I think this happens, happens a lot of times in our world, say, when it comes to celebrities, that what they're known for is not necessarily the most significant thing about them. Let me give you an example. I heard a story recently about a man named John O'Leary. You probably haven't heard of John. He's not famous, at least not yet, or not really famous. Came into contact with somebody famous, but John himself isn't really famous. But he wrote a book recently, and the book he wrote, I want to get, make sure I get the title right here. The book he wrote is called On Fire, The Seven Choices to Ignite a Radically Inspired Life. On Fire, Seven Choices to Ignite a Radically Inspired Life. That sounds like a catchy title. Like someone, you know, some group of publicists in a room like sat there and thought, John, we're going to call it On Fire. That's going to get... But it's not actually just a catchy title. It actually has quite a bit of meaning behind it. When John was nine years old, he was in his parents' garage uh, with a bunch of matches and gasoline. And things went horribly wrong. And uh, through a series of events with the matches and the gasoline, nine-year-old John O'Leary ended up with third-degree burns on 100% of his body. Rushed to the hospital, of course, and all this. His brother actually had to put him out and, and got to the hospital. His parents, I don't think, were even home, but uh, gets to the hospital. Eventually, uh, after they get everything sorted out, they're giving John a 1% chance of surviving. 100% burn. 100% of his body, third-degree burns. Not good. <clears throat> He's living in St. Louis. And uh, the story somehow of John gets to a man in St. Louis named Jack. Uh, Jack, uh, you may or may not know, but Jack is famous. Uh, that's Jack. His name is Jack Buck. Uh, now, some of you know that name when I say it, uh, but Jack Buck was a legendary sportscaster of the St. Louis Cardinals, baseball announcer for years for the Cardinals. If you don't know Jack Buck, you may know his son, Joe Buck. You may have heard him last night announce the Yankees-Houston game. Joe Buck's a pretty famous guy, and Jack's his dad. And Jack heard about John's story, and he went down to the hospital in St. Louis. He went into his room, and John was out or sleeping or unconscious, and and he said, hey, kid, wake up. He said, you're going to make it. He said, you're going to survive. Just keep fighting. And he left the room. And on his way out, the doctors and nurses kind of talked to Jack and said, well, Jack, you know, appreciate you coming down, but this kid's got, you know, 1% chance of surviving. It doesn't look good. Jack comes down the next day, wakes the kid up. Hey, kid, wake up. You're going to make it. 
You're going to beat this. You're going to survive. Just keep fighting. Comes back again the next day. The next day, keep saying this. Comes back five every day for five months. When he can't be there, he sends someone else to be there in order to go into John's room and just speak these words of encouragement to him. Eventually, John, he does make it. He comes out, comes out of the hospital, ends up being able to go to a St. Louis Cardinals game that Jack Buck had organized as John O'Leary Day. And he goes to John O'Leary Day, and he's sitting there in the booth with Jack Buck, and Jack's telling his story to the listeners. And, and as he's sitting there, he notices John, uh, he... he he has no fingers. His, his skin on his hands is beginning to grow back, and that's John O'Leary there, but he has no fingers. And uh, he, so he can't. He was trying to hold a cup. He can't hold a cup. And, and uh, Jack uh, saw this, and he must have known that in order for John to be able to succeed in life, he's going to have to be able to learn to do some things. So John goes home, and the next day in the mail arrives a baseball. And the baseball that arrived in the mail is signed by Ozzie Smith, uh, shortstop of the St. Louis Cardinals. And there's also a note from Jack Buck. And the note said, Hey, kid, if you want another ball, all you got to do is sign a thank you note to the guy who sent you the first one. And John says, you know, he's with Jack the day before. He's like, he knew I couldn't write. He knew I had no hands. He knew I couldn't, I couldn't do this. And yet, with the help of his parents, he scratched out a thank you note to Ozzie Smith sent it in, and then another baseball comes. And he says, hey, kid, if you want another ball, all you got to do is sign a thank you note to the guy who sent you this one. And he did it again and again and again, and throughout the summer, 60 baseballs came and signed and thank you notes sent. And John O'Leary, as I heard him talk, successful motivational speaker, uh, writer now, Christian, he attributes much of where he is today to Jack Buck, taking the time to visit him in the hospital, forcing him to write those thank you notes and, and, and really causing him to thrive in his life. But if I say Jack Buck to most people before you heard that story, if anybody knows him, he's going to say, oh, he's the announcer for the St. Louis Cardinals. He's Joe Buck's dad. He's a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame. But sometimes the things that most people know about you are not really the most important things about you. Because for John O'Leary, it wasn't that important that Jack Buck was in the Hall of Fame or that he was a baseball announcer. Could it be that the most important things about you and me are not the things that most people would know about us? I want you to think about that question as we get into our text this morning because I want to share with you about a man in the Bible who the thing that he's most known for is not the most important thing about him. You may have heard of him if you've been around church for a while, somewhat familiar. His name's Jonah. When I say the word Jonah, if you've had some bit of biblical familiarity, you're going to say, wasn't that the guy that was in the whale for a few days and lived to tell about it? Yep, that's the guy I'm talking about. But the thing that most Jonah is most known for is not really the most important thing about him. In fact, it's not even the point of the story in Jonah. We've got four chapters of the book of Jonah and his letter, this prophet of God. And yes, there's the fish and swallowed and living to tell about it, but that's not even close to the point of the story. So I want to talk to you about Jonah, about a man who's known for something that's really not the most important thing about him. 
and consider for us that maybe the things that people know about us aren't really the most important things about us. Turn to Jonah chapter 4 with me, if you would, if you've got your Bible or click over on your phone, or if you want to grab a Bible from one of the chairs in front of you, there should be one not far from you. If you do grab a pew Bible, we'll be on page 775. I think you'll find the book of Jonah there. Um, And we're going to pick up in the last verse of chapter 3, and I'm going to read chapter 4, and let me bring you up to speed of what's going on if you're not familiar with the story. Jonah was a prophet. Prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God. In the Old Testament, you had prophets and you had priests. Priests spoke to God on behalf of the people. Prophets spoke to the people on behalf of God. And Jonah's a prophet. To be honest, and as we're going to find out, he's not a very good one. Um, Not at all, actually. And I actually think that's why his book is in the Bible, to kind of teach us from how not to... To, uh, to be when God talks to you. But, but anyway, Jonah's a prophet, and he's told by God to do something. He's told by God to go to uh, a people or country uh, in Assyria. The capital's Nineveh, and he's called to go to Nineveh with a message from God. And of course, when Jonah gets that message, he does exactly what you and I would do. Uh, he goes and does what God says. No, that's not what he does. He goes and runs in the exact opposite direction gets a boat to a city called Tarshish, which is the exact opposite direction from Nineveh. And uh, through a series of events that involve a storm, some surly sailors uh, getting thrown overboard, yes, a timeout for three days and a fish and getting vomited up on a beach, he eventually does what God told him to do, sort of. Even then, he isn't really crazy about it. In fact, the Bible only gives us five words that Jonah speaks. Like, it's like he wants to do the ex- absolute minimum and still do what God told him to do. But he preaches these five words is all we know that he said. And, but what happens is the people in the city of Nineveh hear those words and actually respond and turn and turn to God. And that's where we pick the story up. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. And here's what happens. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, now, prayed to the Lord could also be complained to the Lord, because this is his prayer. O Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat in the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. 
And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Interesting book. It's one of the few books in the Bible that actually ends on a question. I think we're supposed to think about that verse, not only what God was saying to Jonah, but what God is saying to us. The most significant thing about Jonah is not that he spent three days in a fish. The most significant thing about Jonah is what he missed. Jonah is given to us as what I would call the reluctant prophet. He ultimately went and I suppose did what God had told him to do, but not happily, not cheerfully. And even when he did it, he was upset with God for the results of what happened. Now, why would someone who's a prophet of God, knows what God told him to do, knows where God called him to go, not go and not do it. Well, before we're too hard on Jonah, maybe we should ask ourselves, has there ever been times where you know that God has been clear with you about something you're supposed to do or someplace you're supposed to go in your life? Maybe you knew a clear teaching of Scripture or a clear call that God on, had on your life and you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's what God was saying, but you did not do it, did not go. Why does that happen? Well, I think if we look at why it was in Jonah's life, we may discover some things about ourselves of why it happens sometimes in our lives. And I think for Jonah, we can look at it this way, that there were borders that Jonah had put up in his life that kept him from pursuing and following the call that God had placed on his life and doing what God had asked him to do. And I'm going to talk to you quickly about three borders that I think kept Jonah from doing what God wanted him to do and can sometimes keep us from doing what God wants us to do. And the first border is this. Jonah is reluctant to go beyond borders for God because of who the Ninevites are, who the other people are. Jonah's reluctant to do what God has told him to do because of what he knows is true about the people that God has told him to go to. He told him to go, God told him to go to the Assyrians. This is different because I think, I could be wrong and maybe I'll be corrected on this, but I can't think of another prophet in the Old Testament that God told and sent to a foreign nation. Almost every prophet in the Old Testament speaks to God's people on behalf of God. God told Jonah to go to the Assyrians, not the Israelites. The Assyrians, if you don't know much about them, they weren't a very nice people. They were dead set, as were many people in that time, on conquering their part of the world. And they didn't do it through diplomatic means. They did it through violence, they did it through cruelty, they did it through terrorism, they did it through torture, and they demanded full loyalty of their subjects, and they made it clear that they were going to get it in whatever means they could. 
And so they did this also with the people of Israel, with Jonah's country. And no doubt, if Jonah hadn't in his own family experienced the wrath of the Assyrians, surely he knew somebody who had. And so now Jonah, this prophet, is told by God to go to the Assyrians and preach to them. And so he had put up borders around them because of what he knew about the other people. When people treat us cruelly, when people hurt us, we often don't want anything to do with them. We put up a border. We don't want to talk with them. We don't want to be associated with them. When a person hurts us deeply, especially when they do it intentionally, like if they did it by accident, maybe we could forgive them. It would still hurt. But when they do it intentionally, deliberately, your emotions are hot. Even when their name comes up in a conversation, we say things like, I don't even know how I would act if I saw them. I don't even know what I would do if I came into contact with them. I don't trust myself around them. I'm mad at them, and I have good reason to be angry. This is how Jonah felt. They did it on purpose. This is how Jonah felt. And sometimes we can be reluctant to go to do what God wants us to do because of what we know about other people. Jonah had a second border, and the second border, you probably heard it in that passage, was what he knew about God. Jonah had put up a border. He didn't want to go to the Assyrians because what he knew about God. Did you hear what he said in there? See what he said about God? He said some bad things about God. He said God is uh, gracious, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And you and I say, amen, thank God, and Jonah was using it as an insult. And he was saying, I knew that this was true about you, God, and so that's why I don't want to go to the Assyrians. I don't want them to experience grace and mercy, and steadfast love, and for you to turn from your wrath against them. And sometimes, isn't it possible for us to feel that way about people who have hurt us? What we know about God, God, you're going to forgive them and show love to them. And uh, that's hard for us to understand. Jonah's reluctant to go because of what he knows about God. It's the third border that Jonah puts up, and that's because of what Jonah knows about himself. What's true about himself? What's true about himself is Jonah was an Israelite prophet. And so for Jonah, he is an Israelite. He's true to, to who he is. And for him to go to a foreign nation and preach as a prophet, because a prophet was sent really as an effort of mercy on God's point. Because God's saying, look, here's what's going to happen if you don't turn. And so Jonah knows he's an Israelite prophet. And he puts up this border because he doesn't want to go to Assyria he doesn't want to go to this country, to these people who have been difficult. He's put up a board. He doesn't want to go beyond it. And so here we find Jonah. He should be happy that an evil group of people like the Ninevites have turned their lives over to God. But yet we find him angry and upset. It is in this moment that God asks Jonah a question. And the question is this. Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? This is an important question because it points to the thing that causes Jonah to miss out on being part of something truly significant. It's the same thing that can cause you and I to miss out on being part of something truly significant. We have to ask ourselves, do you do well 
to have these borders in your life? Do you do well to not be willing to go across these borders? Are we missing something significant that God wants to do through us? The same three reasons that make Jonah reluctant to share the gospel should make us excited to share the gospel. That's the ironic thing. The same three things that make Jonah a reluctant prophet ought to make us a radical people. The same three things that make Jonah be disobedient should make us extremely deliberate when it comes to global outreach and missions and reaching people. Let's just go back through them again real quickly. Jonah set up this border because of what he knew was true of other people. The thing for us, we should be passionate about global outreach because of what we know about other people. Here's what we know about other people. If you're a Christian, here's what you know. What you know are people are loved by God and lost without God. Two things that are absolutely true. Every person you meet, every person that walks on earth, they're loved by God and they're lost without God. We all are. True of every single one of us. And God sent us to people, Christians, who are loved by God and lost without God. And as Christians, we believe that every single person on earth is loved by God and deserves to hear about that love for them or to see that love signed for them, maybe with Chris and Teresa, even if they can't hear about the love. That every person deserves to be able to be given the gospel of Jesus Christ in a language, in a way that they understand it. You know, and this is what we believe, that every person on the earth deserves this. You know, and sometimes when we come to this Sunday a year, or when we come to this topic of global outreach, there are some people who at times, and I can imagine that there are many more who think this in their heart, but there are a couple people who say it out loud to me. And they say, they might say something like, you talk a lot about reaching people in other parts of the world. But what about all the people right around us who don't yet know God? Don't we have enough to worry about here without worrying about the rest of the world? Aren't there plenty of people who are close to us and far from God? Isn't this the work that we should be doing? And I would say this. I would say a couple things. First, I would say let's be careful not to confuse lostness with access. There's a difference the person in North Burlington who doesn't know Jesus is equally lost as the person in North Korea who doesn't know Jesus. But there's a much different aspect of access from the person in North Burlington and the person in North Korea. The person here, living here, has access to a free and open internet that, that has all kinds of resources, Bibles, sermons, podcasts, uh, all kinds of places that are trying to reach people, has access to uh, buy, go to Barnes & Noble and buy a Bible if, they, if they're interested in it. They will drive by, you know, no less than probably 10 churches on their way to work in the morning. They have at least a couple churches in their own town that preaches the gospel, even in New England, they can turn on a radio station and it has a radio where people are preaching the gospel or turn on a TV station where people are preaching the gospel. Contrast that to a place where someone lives that the internet is restricted, that TV and radio is restricted and monitored for the sole purpose of keeping the gospel out of that place and out of that location where they might go their entire life, not without passing a church, but without ever even meeting a Christian. There, may, there is no doubt there is equally lost people in the world. But there is not equal access, and that's not fair, and that's a job that we should be working to change. 
Let me give you an, let me explain it this way. Another illustration of it might look at it this way. You know, a lot of times we hear about people in the world that don't have access to clean water. And if we're in the United States, you know, we think that's not right. I mean, that's not, there's people in the world that we hear about, and they say they can't get a gallon of clean water to give to their family. And today, you and I, according to uh, most estimates, will uh, put 40 gallons of clean, drinkable water down the drain just between our showers and everything else today. And then we'll throw more of it on our lawns and we'll throw, you know, we'll use about 80 gallons of water each today. And yet there's people in the world that don't have access to clean water. And we think, well, that shouldn't be. Uh, that shouldn't be. So we send money at times to dig wells and to, to give people access to clean water because we look at that and we say, that should not be. Now, all that money to go that go to dig wells, whether it's charity water or some other uh, organization that does it, all that money that goes to dig wells, uh, I don't think any, any of it goes to the United States or any other first world countries. I haven't seen a drilling rig outside my house trying to get clean water for my family. Why not? Well, I have access to clean water. I have all the access I, I need to clean water. So you need to send that drilling rig to a place in the world that doesn't have access to it. So the difference, there is equal lostness but not equal access. And we work to say that's not fair. We need to correct that. It doesn't mean we're not called. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we're not called to reach our area. We absolutely are. Well, let me put it to you this way. At Mount Hope, there's three things I've told you that we'll ask you to give to and we'll ask you to support. Three things you'll hear from me that I will unashamedly always ask when it comes to giving and support. The Lord's tithe, vision, and global outreach. These three things that we give to the Lord. We give to the Lord from our income, the first fruits and the tithe. We give to vision when we're talking about vision of doing things, building a building or starting a new program or starting a new campus in order to reach our community. We'll give to vision and then give to global outreach, which is sending it out to the world. So let's just talk about the numbers for a second. Tithes and vision is really about reaching our community here. That, most of that money stays here. It's about supporting this ministry. It's about uh, having, you know, being able to support the ministry here, keeping the lights on, having the buildings, doing that stuff, paying the staff, the ministries that are done, all that tithe and envision. All, most of that money stays right here in order to reach Burlington and Belmont and all of our surrounding communities. So last year, our budget for tithes and offerings and vision or the money that came in was about a million dollars. The global outreach money that goes out, uh, that goes out to our partners around the world, last year that was about $100,000. So before we say, well, you know, shouldn't we care about the people here and what we're doing here? I would say, it's not that we don't care about. In fact, 10 times as much money is available here for us to reach our community. But ought we not to care about the people around the world who are equally lost but do not have equal access to the message of Jesus Christ. Do you do well? I think God would ask us when we get upset about those things or when we get uncomfortable with those things. I'm reminded that the Apostle Paul, when he was writing a letter to Rome, he said, this is why I have often been hindered from coming to you, but now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, 
I'm going to come to you on my way to Spain, he tells Rome. So what is he saying to these Christians at Rome? He's saying, look, in Rome, you already have some Christians. That's why I haven't come. You got some Christians there. I had to do work here, but now all my work here is done, so I have to go somewhere else. What is Paul saying? Is all of Eastern Europe and Asia reached? No, of course not. We're talking about the first century. Christians don't even show up as a blip on the statistical religious radar. But what Paul is saying is there's access to Christianity in Ephesus and in Corinth and in Philippi and in all these major cities around. And so now I've got to go someplace else where there's no access. Not that all of Ephesus is reached. Of course it's not. There's lots of people in Ephesus that don't know Jesus. But now there's a church in Ephesus, and it's their job to reach Ephesus. And we got to go to Spain, Paul says, because there's no Christians in Spain, and they need to come to know Jesus. So we ought to be passionate about global outreach because of who other people are. Loved by God, lost without God. Next two points, and they're a lot quicker than the first one. I got a little passionate about that one. Here's the next two. We ought to go beyond borders because of who God is. And Jonah tells us, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, relenting of calamity. He's a merciful and loving God. And so, because God loves even his enemies, we ought also to do so. Because the Bible says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. In other words, Paul's saying, look, you were enemies, and God showed his love to you. So we also ought to show love to anyone and everyone. I think Jesus, you know, he says, love your enemies, because he, he meant, look, at everyone in between too. And the greatest love we can show someone is telling them about Jesus. So we ought to be passionate about missions because of who God is, because who he is. He loves people. But thirdly, you ought to be, we ought to be passionate about global outreach because of who we are. Same three reasons that got Jonah mad are the same three reasons that ought to motivate us because of who we are. And who are we? We who are Christians who know God are recipients of the abounding grace of God. We have received God's grace. We are blessed in order to be a blessing. We have been blessed by God with this beautiful message of God in order to be a blessing to the world. And so this is who we are. We have been given much by God so that we may also share it with others. So we ought to be passionate about going beyond borders because of who other people are, because of who God is, and because of who we are. These three things should motivate us, but often they do not. Why not? Because we tend to be like Jonah. We're more concerned with ourselves than others. We're bothered by the global outreach celebration because the messages aren't focused on us. We like that God has met our own lostness but aren't moved by the lostness of others. We would rather use our resources on ourselves than others. And if any of those things I think are true about you or God's kind of pricking in your heart something, then the question we need to consider is this. Do you do well in having that response? Do you do well when we do, we might miss out on the most significant thing in our lives that we could be doing. 
So let me come back to the question we started out the message with. What if the most significant thing about you is not the thing that most people know about you? What if the most significant thing is not the thing most people know about you? I don't know what it is came to your mind that people would say about you. You're a great friend, maybe. You're a great person. You're a great artist, a great salesperson, a whiz of computers, a wonderful son or daughter. I don't know what it is that people might know you as. But what if the most significant thing about you is the difference that you're making in the kingdom of God throughout the world that no one even knows that about you? People, when they know you for all kinds of things, but the most significant thing about you is, is your heart aligned with the heart of God for people? Because that's what happened with Jonah. He, Jonah said, I would rather die than live with a God who loves his enemies. His heart was not aligned with the heart of God. And so we, no matter what people know us for, the most significant thing we can do is have our, our heart aligned with the heart of God for people. In empowering missionaries to spread the gospel, we have an opportunity to do something that's truly significant. Might not be anything anyone knows you for, but it may be the most significant thing you do. What are you spending your time, your talent, and your treasure on? Are they things that are truly significant and eternally significant? For those of us who follow Jesus, what would be a greater significance than helping someone else come to follow Jesus? And we have the opportunity to do this. We have global outreach partners in our backyard and around the world. Uh, and you can see on this map, it kind of shows generally where our partners are. And those dots represent often more than one person serving in those places of the 35 partners that we have serving around the world. Um, that's a little harder to read, but shows you more specifically the partners that we have and where they're serving. And you can see that many of them, and we uh, heavily weight our support to people that are serving in that red and yellow area, those places that are the least reached uh, with the gospel, that have the least amount of access, uh, because certainly there are people lost all across that map, but there are some people that just don't have access. And so we, uh, so we do that. There's some of the countries that people are serving in as well. What do we do? We can give, we can pray, and we can go. We give to others who are going. This is the pattern that God set up for the church. Romans chapter 10, if you want to look it up, uh, Paul said, you know, how can they know if they don't hear? How can they hear if no one preaches? How can someone preach if they're not sent? Send them out. Somebody's got to go, but somebody's got to send them. And so this is the pattern that God has set up. So we give to support those who are willing to go. We pray for them in our prayer support and everything else. And so what, it, what happens? Well, you give in your faith promise offering, and it goes out to partners that uh, we have partnered with, and we're very careful and very deliberate about who we partner with, partners like Chris and Teresa. And then what are the results of that, maybe you ask? And every year I try and find a way to... Uh, try and put this in tangible terms without uh, taking away any spiritual significance of it. But maybe ask, what's the ROI on this? You know, what's the, what's the return on investment that we're putting in the kingdom? 
And I heard one pastor recently uh, break down the numbers for Assemblies of God foreign missions, and, and he broke down the numbers, and he put it this, for every $200 given to Assemblies of God foreign missions worldwide, one person is added to the overseas church. One person comes to Jesus. So with Assemblies of God World Missions, for every, that, that, you know, the latest statistics as of this past year, for every $200 that's invested in Assemblies of God World Missions around the world, one person comes to follow Jesus. And so that means that for every $100 monthly faith promise, which I think at last count is the average faith promise for uh, someone at Mount, an adult at Mount Hope, for every $100 monthly faith promise at Mount Hope, six people in that year come to know Jesus added to the overseas church. Now, you may look at that number and say, that seems like a lot, $200 to bring one person and one person to Jesus. I would say, consider all the money that a local church in the United States might use to try to bring one person to Jesus, or two people to Jesus. I think the monies are being used quite effectively to bring people to Jesus. So that's that's what's going on. You might say, you know, you, you say, well, you're putting a price on a soul. And, and I recently heard Pastor Tim Schmidt say it this way. No, we don't put a price on a soul. God already did that. That price is the blood of Jesus Christ. He's already done that. This is the cost of what it takes to get someone out to the missions field to do the work that God has called them to in the world that we are living in. But I want you to know, the money's given. Go out and serve a purpose and have a return for the kingdom of God. But it may be that the most significant thing that you do may not be the thing that people know about you. Some people might say, well, I can't afford to support missions. I can't afford to give to global outreach. And I, I, I'm guessing, I think there may be places in the world where people could actually say that. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure. We don't live in one of them. Um, we can usually all afford to do something when it comes to giving to the kingdom of God. We have discretionary income that we use for all kinds of things. Again, Pastor Tim Schmidt, I heard recently and uh, talk about this, and he said, um, you know, whatever anybody says that to him, my question is always, do you have cable? <laughs> and he said, there's nothing wrong with having cable. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with driving a fancy car, but if you're spending more money on your cable than you're spending on getting the gospel out to places that don't have access to it, you may need to rethink whether you can afford to give to global outreach, to give to reaching people around the world. If you're spending more money on, you know, upgrading your car to something uh, that uh, it's nothing wrong with driving a fancy car. But if you're spending more money on those than getting the gospel to go around the world, you may need to rethink your priorities. And I think that's kind of maybe hard to hear. It may be hard to say, but I don't think I'd be faithful as your pastor if I didn't at least challenge us on our thinking in those areas. Because one day we'll give account for what God has given to us, entrusted us with. We are blessed to be a blessing and we're stewards of these things that God has given us and is our heart aligned with the heart of God? So take out that Connect card that you had when you came in. If you haven't figured it out yet, I'm getting around to a commitment here. Uh, if you've been at Mount Hope for a while, you know we do this every year and this is the Sunday we do this on. And uh, this is an important Sunday for us It's an important Sunday for us, but it's not just an important Sunday for us. 
what we do in this moment, and I'm going to ask our music team to return with me as we close out our service, what we do in this moment has significant consequences throughout the world. There are global outreach partners around the world we already support, counting on and affected by what we do in this moment. There are future partners doing everything they can to get enough support so that they can simply uproot their family out of the comfortable United States and take them to a foreign country hostile to the gospel and Christians counting on what we do in this moment. There are people throughout the world who have never heard of Jesus counting on what we do in this moment. God has called people to go. People have responded. God has put resources in the church to send them The only question is, will the Christians keep what God gave them for themselves? Or will we send them to places that God has called them to go? What we do in this moment has significant consequences around the world and throughout eternity. And so I want you to consider this card. You know, this year as I was looking at our giving uh, and how our giving's been over the last several years at Mount Hope, I'm I'm, uh, excited and glad that over the last... Five years, we've, every year, we've given over, sent out over 100,000 to our global outreach partners around the world, as I mentioned that earlier. But I also look at this and say, you know, over the last five years, we've been kind of flat in what we've been able to send out. And that's, that, you know, I like the consistency. There's something to be said for consistency. But also, there's something to be said to be able to expand. So just so you know where we are, we've got a list of partners We've got people that come to us all the time uh, and say, you know, look, we want to take our family. We want to go around the world. We want to go someplace to take the gospel that it's not. We want to get people access. These are people who have been vetted, who have met with our team, who have been evaluated, and they're on the list, and we, our answer is almost always the same. You've got to wait till October. You've got to wait till October because that's when we'll know. That's when we'll know what the faith promises are. That's when we'll know what the commitments are. That's what we'll know when we're able to take on more partners and send out more support and be able to support people around the world. And so this moment is important for us. This moment is important for churches around the world, for people around the world. Um, and so I looked at this number and I talked to Chuon, our missions director, and with Pastor Brian, our campus pastor over in Belmont. And we looked at this and we said, you know, it's kind of flat. Wouldn't it be great? if we can move that needle a little bit this year. And so we talked about, wouldn't it be great if it was, you know, we can get 10% more to give to missions, to send out. And maybe that's too low, I don't know, but I'll take 10% and we'll be able to send that out and be able to take on more partners and be able to do more around the world. And so, you know, that's what we're looking at, you know, that number and saying, God, would you bring in at least 10% more to be able to send that out? Now, it's easy to say, man, wouldn't it be great if the church gave 10% more? Until this week, you know, where I'm talking with my wife about our commitment, and we're saying, okay, what's our commitment? 10% more. Okay, 10% more. Okay, you bring it home to your own checkbook, and then it becomes a little bit more of a challenge maybe sometimes to say, all right, what did we give, and uh, what, would it, what would it take? What is God asking and wanting to do through us? And to be honest, you know, I was talking to Wendy this week, and she was in the first service, and we talked and prayed about our commitment, but I was talking to her earlier before the service, and I said, you know, you know, to be fair, you know, our commitment to global outreach has stayed pretty flat the last five years, too, and, you know, it's a, that's, that's kind of where we've been, and we can look at it all the time and say, oh, man, look what we're giving. You know, this is good. This is, you know, we're, we're giving this, and we feel good about ourselves, but the truth is, if I look back on the last five years, most of the things I buy 
most of the things I spend money on, I'm spending more money on them than I did five years ago. No matter what it is, food, car, house, things, whatever. I'm spending more money than I did five years ago, but yet this part of my life has stayed pretty flat. And that's not right for me. And so we thought about, okay, what could we do? What does God want to do through us for the global church around the world? I think this is a challenge. You know, for me, and this might be, not be true about you, but let me just talk honestly for me and where I'm at. I grew up in a, in a church as a Christian. I, when it comes to giving, I grew up tithing. That's, and I don't want to, this isn't, I don't want to say it's not hard for me, but in some ways it's not hard for me. And I don't say that in a bragging way. I say that in a way to say that we need to be challenged at times to tithe, and this is something I've always done. And, and to be honest, in this day and age, sometimes it comes out of your bank account. You don't even know. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's something we've decided to do out of obedience. But what Global Outreach does for me is it forces me to say, okay, beyond that, how has God wanted to stretch me? And it forces me to live below my means. Below my... Have you ever... If you're... Uh, this is coming to mind. I, I don't know. This is maybe a poor example. But as a Christian, you ever gone for a loan for like your house as a Christian who tithes uh, and, and gives money and you're shocked by how much house they say you can buy? And, and like you go, for, you go for like a loan for a house and you're like, I can't afford that. What are you, crazy? You know, about the, and I'm like, oh, they're not taking into account all this money that I've already committed to God and where I've, you know, it forces you to live below your means. It forces you to say, look, there's some things that are more important to us. And I think as, honestly, as Christians living in the United States of America, um, we can probably, many of us, afford to live below our means in some ways. Just a thought, just a challenge, just a thought as a pastor, maybe we could. Um, something to think about. So I don't know where God's speaking to you. This is a faith promise card. That's between you and the Lord. It's in faith. It's your commitment. You're never going to get a phone call from me. You're never going to get a letter from me asking about this card. This is between you and the Lord. Go straight to our uh, missions director, really, Chuon. Really, the rest of the team don't even see them. They don't get these names. Chuon puts them in a document, takes the names out, just so we know what there is and what we can send out. Um, and this, but it's important. So on this card, it says making a new commitment or a renewing commitment. If you're renewing a commitment and you're just keeping what you did last year or you're up in that, please tell us. Don't assume we're going to assume because we don't. Um, so it, the commitment is from November to October. So from November of 2017 to October of 2018 of what you will believe that God is going to do through you to give and to pray for the global church and to reach people around the world. So I would ask that you carefully read this. That's the one last thing I'll tell you. Okay, put the number in the right box. Sometimes we've had to guess. Sometimes we'll get a card and it'll be in the monthly box, but it really, they meant it as a one-time offering. And we're like, whoa, if that comes in monthly, wow, that'd be great. Um, so just be careful, help us uh, put it in the right box there so when we are figuring this out, um, you know, we know for, you know, we can kind of budget because that's what we do. We'll say, we'll talk to our missionary partners and we'll be able to hopefully this year say, hey, some extra money came in. We want to be able to help you to get you to where God has called you to go. 
We want to partner with you. Four years ago, we said that to Chris and Teresa. We'd love to be able to say that to some other partners this year. Let us help get you to where God has called you to do. Because to be honest, we're doing the easy part. Writing the check is the easy part. These guys that have uprooted their family to go and to serve and to be where God's called them to be need our prayers, need our support, and uh, more than anything. So as you consider that card, I'm going to give you, we're going to um, put them, I think there's some baskets. we got some basket guys if you want to bring that, that up there, Dan. And uh, our response to the sermon is simple. It's completing this card. You can put it right in the middle, Dan. That's great. Thanks. Our response to the sermon is this. This is our, this is our worship. This is our worship today. How will we respond to God's message? And so I ask you to prayerfully consider if you've got a spouse here with you, maybe you've got to talk it over, pray with each other for a couple minutes, ask God what he wants to do through you this year. Admission. It's a faith promise. So I'm encouraging you to think about and ask God, God, are you asking me to stretch? Because we never see God, I think, move in a mighty way and provide for us if we never step out in faith and we put ourselves in a position that God has to provide for us. We never, you know, a lot of times I think we miss seeing God move in our lives because we are too afraid to take a risk for him. Not asking you to do something foolish, but I am asking you to walk in faith. We're not called to act foolishly, but we are called to be people of faith who trust God, who has enough, who has an abundance, who provides for us. And so let us be a people of faith as we do that. So I'm going to pray, and then as you complete these cards, uh, just when you're ready, just come forward, put it in the basket as your act of worship, go back to your chair, we'll stand, and we'll worship the Lord together for this. Lord, God, we come before you this morning. Lord, and I thank you for the privilege of being able to partner with you and with these men and women who have committed to taking your message to places that don't have access to your gospel, have committed to bringing the hope of Jesus Christ to places and to people who don't have it and will, if, we don't, if no one goes to them, won't have anyone within their own community and culture that can share it with them. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being a partner with your mission. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we, like Jonah, have set up borders and have failed to go beyond where you are calling us to go. Lord, help us not to be reluctant or disobedient when you call us to go and to give and to pray. Lord, may we, Father, be passionate and deliberate when it comes to giving. And when it comes to, Lord, seeing people reached for your kingdom, because in the end, that's the only thing that's going to last. Houses, cars, everything else will pass away, will rust, Lord, but the souls of men and women will live on for eternity. Father, would you use us to be a part of making that investment, making a difference in eternity. In Jesus' name. Amen.